Good morning. Uh, it, make sure uh, everyone has an outline this, this morning. Hopefully if you do, just kind of be bold and raise a hand if you don't. They're, they're in the back. I know where, what Drew's up to. He's going to go grab some. And turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Galatians 5, 19 through the end of the chapter. Brandon covered last week that atrocious list that's just kind of painful to read. And he looked at me with a bit of chagrin going, how on earth did I get this text? Because it's an unpleasant text. And uh, I have the luxury and privilege to diving into a far more pleasant list today, right? The fruit of the spirit. I get to draw up the schedule, so I gave him sorcery, (laughs) immorality. And we're going to cover love, joy, and peace this morning. All right. Let's read Galatians 5, 19 through the end of the chapter. We'll open in prayer and ask for the Lord's help this morning. It reads, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, Outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which, lost my place, things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you. That you, by your spirit, grant an array of gifts to us as believers in the most undeserving way. You lavish us with grace, of which this book is all about. Your spirit lavishes us with, with the gift of salvation. You regenerate us. You make us born again. You make us your own. You give us a new name and you clothe us in your righteousness. We're grateful. Lord, you also give us abilities to serve. Uh, Lord, gifts of the spirit to Be utilized in the body for the edification of your people, but also the bringing of glory to yourself. And Lord, you also bring about the graces of the Spirit, where you mark us with a character that is not natural to us, but Lord, is most natural to you. And we get the privilege and opportunity, even the command, to manifest your character to a world that is watching and lacking hope and needs to be directed to your Son. And we ask that today would be meaningful, the next few weeks would be meaningful as we Take a deep dive into each one of these character qualities, Lord. These things that you wrought in us and are bringing about in increasing fashion. Lord, would you increase our faithfulness to pray for these things, to work and to toil and avail ourselves to your mercy and your kindness, that you would show your mighty power on display in our lives by conforming us into your likeness. We pray that in so doing, Lord, relationships would be blessed. This fellowship would be marked with a sweetness which is palpable and undeniable to a world that looks on. 
Lord, we also pray that you would bring glory to yourself, most importantly. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Side note, is there any, that light right there, is there any way for it to just go down a a hair? Um, Great. I I love looking at Joe on Sunday mornings, and it gets hard to do that. Um, Perfect. They're working on it. All right. Galatians 5. We're going to dive into verse 22. Oh, that's so much better. 522. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. On January 6, 1941, President FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, kind of shared what kind of world he wanted to see after the war, War, right? Um, and there were four freedoms that he basically laid out that he wanted all human beings to enjoy. Uh, a freedom of speech, a freedom of worship, freedom of, from want, and freedom from fear. And in many ways, you and I can attest that we've really seen that culminate and be manifested in a variety of different ways even today, right? Freedom of speech and worship and freedom from want and fear, that's on display even today. But the reality is our world needs a fifth kind of freedom, a freedom from himself, freedom from the tyranny of sin and the sinful nature. And the only way that that freedom is ever going to be known is through the work of another, right? And we know through the work of who? Not just that, but the only way that that freedom is going to be applied is also through the power of another. And therein lies really the message of the book of Galatians, is it not? Chapters 1 through 3, Paul has been very clear that the work that all of us need is the work of Jesus Christ in salvation and the work of Jesus Christ, important word, alone, right? He's all I need. He's accomplished everything that is required. And yet now in chapters 4 through 6, the back half of the book, which is so classic to Paul's epistles, right? Paul is clear to say that the power that you need is also the power and reign of God's Spirit in your life. That this is not only a Christ-wrought freedom, but this is also a Spirit-applied freedom as well. So now at the end of chapter 5, Paul's laying out really three distinct ministries of God's Spirit that you and I need to be desperate for in our lives if we are ever going to use our Christian freedom in a way that's responsible and faithful. And I trust that's what you want your life to be marked by, yes? I want to use my freedom in Christ responsibly and faithfully. If you look back at verses 13 through 15, which was like three Sundays ago, I believe, Really kind of packaged together was a responsible use of Christian freedom should produce a life of purity and love. And then the last two Sundays in verses 16 through 21 is that our great God not only enables us to fulfill the law, the law of love, but he also enables us to overcome the flesh. We just read it a second ago. That an empowered use of Christian freedom should produce a life of conflict with the flesh, right? Right? Freedom should lead to war, which is the irony, right? A warring against the flesh, and this war is, a, is one of terrible struggle. You can attest to it in your own life. Thankfully, 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 God's Spirit enables us to overcome the flesh, right? Look at verse 16 for a moment. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will What? not, big underline, not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, friends, now Paul here at this juncture shifts gears in verses 22. 
And he informs us as to what the Spirit of God enables us to produce, right? It's, it's one thing to overcome the flesh and not do evil things, which is what we want as believers. I don't want to do evil things. At least that should be our desire. But it's quite something else to do good things, isn't it? To produce honorable things, to be marked by righteous things. The, the legalist may very well boast that he or she is not an adulterer or murderer. But the question for the legalist is, can anyone see the beautiful graces of the Spirit in your life? That's the question. Can anyone see the beautiful graces of God's Spirit in your life? There must be positive qualities as well. Our lives are to be, yes, marked by what we refrain from, but also equally so by what we produce, what we manifest, the characteristics that we display, which leads us to the next three weeks. This week's in the two, two we're going to slow it down. Verses 22 through 26, okay? Here's the main idea of that whole text will be over the next few weeks. An empowered use of Christian freedom should produce a life that reflects the character of God. Empowered use of Christian freedom should produce a life that reflects the character of God. Let's read verse 22 again. But the fruit of the Spirit is... I want to pause there as we make our way into the list. It's a very familiar list, isn't it? You know this, many of you seasoned believers, anytime you approach something with great familiarity, there's a great caution and need to be careful, (laughs) right? So approach this with a degree of eagerness. Lean in with a sense of freshness. God, would you impress this upon me in new, fresh ways of which perhaps I have grown cold and apathetic, dull of hearing, as we'll see later in Hebrews. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Characteristics that God wants in our lives is this ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Now, before we delve into what exactly the fruit of the Spirit consists of, and we will, we want to ring out every bit of the top of verse 22 for all, of its, for all that it's worth. For you and I to properly navigate through what lies in front of us in this passage, we have to take a look at The fruit of the Spirit. You see, when Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, there's a contrast there. There's a contrast between the works and the deeds of the flesh. To what imagery is he using here? Instead of works and deeds, he uses what verbiage? Fruit. You see the contrast right out the gate? Works, fruit. Those are two very different important important images that Paul uses. There's a shift in imagery, and it's not without purpose. You see, a machine in a factory works and turns out a product. But a machine does not do what? It does not produce fruit. Fruit, you see, must grow out of life. And in this case, in the life of the believer, it is the life of who? It's the life of God's Spirit residing within us. The flesh, Hebrews 9.14, the flesh produces dead works. But the Spirit produces living fruit is the essence and force of this passage. And this fruit has in it the seed for still more fruit. Don't you love how this envelops in your life, develops in your life? Love begets often more love. Joy often produces more joy, etc. 
Our great Savior, you know this in John 15, he's concerned that you and I bear fruit and more fruit and much fruit. Why? Why is Christ concerned that we bear fruit? John 15, somebody tell me. Be a witness. Excellent. What does that passage say? You will know them by their fruit, right? You will know them by their fruit. We're we're marked by these things, giving evidence that God is within us. He saved us. And if this fruit is simply the unfolding of life within us, and it is, what is that life that resides within us? It's the life of God himself. And I, I say that, very simple statement, just for us to be struck with the profundity of that all over again. It's the life of God himself within me. It's the life of his son. It's the indwelling of his spirit. And so the fruit of the spirit is simply the outward expression of Christ dwelling within us. So that as that beautiful image of Christ grows within us, the harvest of that growth gives way to all of these expressions of the fruit of the spirit in our lives. What do these expressions of God's spirit look like? What they look like is ever-developing Christian character. The qualities we see in Galatians 15, 5 through 23 have to do with our character. And here is where this is important for us to remember. It's because the Spirit is responsible, and I prayed this a moment ago in thankfulness, the Spirit is responsible for a great deal in our lives, right? We can look at chapter, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 11. The Spirit is responsible. We can even look at Titus later. Responsible for the gift of salvation, regeneration, making us new beings, right? We also know from 1 Corinthians 12 that the Spirit is responsible for gifting us, right? Giving us capacities for service that we're to be faithful to use in the body. We're endowed by His Spirit for ministry. But from the graces of His Spirit, that's something else. There's salvation. There's capacities for service. But the graces of God's Spirit have to do with our character. And character is what Paul here is speaking of. I want to pause there for a moment to just simply ponder. When we look look about the graces of God's spirit and Christian character, I have to ask as a follower of Jesus Christ, where and how is that important to my life? Here's where this is important. We live in a day where there is an overemphasis on spiritual gifts. Is it not? Have you ever experienced that? We love to be fascinated with spiritual gifts. And that overemphasis has led Christians to neglect the graces of the fruit of the Spirit. And we understand this. We have the tendency in every age to associate God's spirits, God, the Spirit's working in our lives with extraordinary manifestations of His, His work, right? Activity, power, signs, wonders, healings, miracles, all of those revelatory gifts. We live in an age that is fascinated with those things. And so that today the expression of a spirit-filled Christian is often associated with a person designated that's gifted by God in extraordinary ways to do any of those things. And that's what the world means. These dramatic and ecstatic expressions of God's spirit in their life. Those are gifts of the spirit. Friends, you and I have to remain clear as to what Paul is referring to here. To be filled, to be spirit-filled, is the gift that belongs to all Christians. 
That's why Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, singular, and not fruits of the Spirit, plural. It's the fruit. We all possess it because he resides within all of us. That's simply not the case with the gifts of the Spirit that we see in 1 Corinthians 12, is it? We do not all possess all of those gifts, do we? No, God deliberately withholds certain gifts from each of us per his choosing and wisdom. There's no Christian who possesses all the gifts of ministry. You may not have the gift of teaching or administration or discernment or evangelism. But if you are a Christian, you have this ninefold fruit in your life to some discernible extent. Why? It's because the one who is justified by grace has been indwelt with God's spirit. His spirit is living inside of you. And that Holy Spirit who granted new life in the first place now sanctifies those who belong to Christ. And sometimes he knows this, you know this in your own life, sometimes he works in very powerful, dramatic ways, and sometimes he works in slow ways that are imperceptible. But he's always working. He's always moving. He's always shaping. Why do I say all this? I want to be very, I want to encourage you this morning I mention this is because building and displaying and seeing the character of Christ within us should and ought to take precedence over displaying special abilities. Let me say that again. Displaying, cultivating Christian character should take precedent over displaying special abilities. This list should haunt me. I should yearn for manifesting this list. I should pray for it. I should say, God, please make these abound in my life more and more every day. And will you, will you convict me where it doesn't? Because you and I are often slow of hearing and slow of living and applying, and this is to take precedent, Paul has to spell this out what this character looks like. So let's look at the first one here. Of what Christian character is to look like, he, right out the gate, he says love. Love. There's little wonder why the top of the list begins with this particular characteristic, right? Look back at Galatians 5.14, what Brandon covered, or I think maybe, maybe it was Drew. Craig was 14. Yeah, don't quiz me on that. Somebody covered so faithfully, so wonderfully, Galatians 5.14. That the whole law is fulfilled in one word. What was the word? Love. Love. Yes, love your neighbor as yourself. And you want to talk about the contrast between the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Look back at the text last week that Brandon covered. Paul opted to begin his list of the deeds of the flesh with what quality? What's at the top of the list? Galatians 5. 19. What's that? I heard it. Yeah, no one wants to say it. Immorality, right? And specifically, sexual immorality, right? And this is that eros kind of love, that sensual love of self that our world, I don't need to tell you, our world is dominated by it. Sensual love of self. But that is not the spirit indwelt believer. It's not so with said believer. Their lives are marked with an agape love, a a divine type of love towards God and towards others. It's that that love of God that Romans 5.5 says God has literally poured into our hearts, right? 
Philippians 1.9, that he's poured out into our hearts. And at the same time, we should work to cultivate it and pray that it would abound and increase in my life. Why is that the case? Why should I work to see it cultivated? Why should I ask and plead and pray that God would manifest this in my life more and more? It's because love reflects the character of the God who saved me. That's why. We know, turn into 1 John for a moment. Fast forward in the New Testament towards the end, 1 John. You know this, you're familiar with it. God is love, right? 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. John says that agape love is a true mark of salvation. 1 John 3.14 reads the following. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Couldn't be any clearer, could it? And at the same time, John also repeatedly makes clear in this same letter that having a habitual, unloving spirit toward other people is reason for a person to pause and question and examine his or her salvation. Look at 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, our wrath absorber before God. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also also to love one another. No one has seen God in any time. If, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his, what? Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are we in this world. We reflect the character of God. We love, verse 19, because he first loved us, right? Look at verse 20, because John points out their hypocrisy. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Friends, you think that he was making the point clear. It is like a drum that he's beating incessantly. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. To love is to be godlike. It's to be Christ-like and to be Christ-like in the world. And I say that because you and I have to remember, you and I cannot be godlike or Christ-like in the world unless unless we have the power of someone else living inside of us. Love is not natural to me. You know what is natural to me? Immorality. That's natural. I, we don't need coaching for the deeds of the flesh. No one has to coach my children to do any of those things. 
What is natural to me are the deeds of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. You know who love is natural to? You look at 1 John, love is natural to God. He is love. And so as he begins to work in us, and as we begin to submit to his leading, the fruit of that submission will be, will be love. I will love people more faithfully, more fervently, more consistently. And if we need an example of what that kind of love looks like, who do we look at? If I need an example of what love manifested in real time and space looks like, who do I look to? I'm asking you. Christ, Jesus Christ. And we say it unashamedly, right? Love was supremely revealed in Christ. John 13, John 15. This agape form of love is that love that reflects a personal choice of self-giving sacrifice in service. Self-giving sacrifice. Who do I look to? I look to Christ. It's not base. This is not the Hollywood love. And you know this. This is not pleasant emotions and warm feelings and fuzzies. No, this is an overwhelming impulse to lay down your life for another person. That's why I say this is not natural to me. What is natural to me is self-preservation. It's not laying down my life for other people in service, in humility. This is what Christ displayed in his own life, is it not? In a moment, we're going to sing songs that testify to this, right? You know this in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his love toward us What's the rest of the verse? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 15, 13, Jesus told his disciples that the most extreme love-driven sacrificial choice that a person can make is to lay down his life for his friends. 1 John 3, 16, we said it, read it a second ago. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Here's the takeaway. Friends, love is a summary for the way we are to treat people. Let me give a pause, a pastoral pause for a moment. Love is a summary of the way we are to treat people. But our love for people is not based on their attractiveness. We are often called to love very unlovely people, aren't we? We are often, and we are called, to love people that aren't always easy to love. That's why we say, I need help from outside of myself. This is the love that pours forth from the Spirit at work in our lives. Sometimes we are called to love people we can't stand, that get on our nerves. And in those moments, and we all have them, we cannot reflect the character of God in the way that we ought and are called Unless God's Spirit helps us. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Second manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit is is joy. Joy. Puritan Thomas Watson once commented that there are two things of which I have looked upon as difficult. I think this is on the PowerPoint this morning. Hey, David, is this on the PowerPoint? Thomas Watson? Boom. Okay. Excellent. Everyone listen. 
There's no reading. Really? Okay. That was probably on me. That's my fault. All right. What a shame. I worked so hard on that PowerPoint. Um, humbling. God humbles us. All right. Joy. Joy. All of that effort for, for no purpose. No purpose. I just need a moment. Just two seconds. Joy. We need joy, right? All right. Second manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy. Puritan Thomas Watson once commented, you have to listen. There are two things of which I have always looked upon as difficult. The one is to make the wicked sad. The other is to make the godly joyful. To make the wicked sad and to make the godly joyful. Now, that ought to surprise us and shame us all at the same time. Because the fact that the wicked are not sad signifies the Spirit's absence, isn't it? The wicked are not sad because the Spirit is absent in their life. There's no contrition. There's no remorse for sin. You flip that upside down on its head. The fact that the godly are joyful is meant to signify God's presence in our life. And so if we are without joy, Christians, that should be very revealing and troubling to all of us. What is joy? Joy is that, and this would have been on your PowerPoint, so write this down. It's that deep down sense of well-being that resides in the heart of a person. Joy is that deep down sense of well-being that resides in the heart of a person. Let me ask you this morning. What is that sense of well-being based on? For you and I as Christians, what is that sense of well-being based on? Open question. Salvation, right? This inescapable notion in our life that all is well between me and my God because of the work of someone else. No hostility, no enmity, friendship, fellowship, union, sweetness, love. All is well. Right? We sing of it in many of our songs. That sense of well-being is yours because you know all is well between you and the God who made you. And church, that is absolutely crucial to remember. Why? What does joy not come from? What does it not come from? Circumstances. Absolutely. It does not come from either favorable circumstances or even human emotion. Oh, this joy is different. This is spirit-induced joy, joy, spirit-wrought joy. This is well-being. This is what the psalmist calls ashray, right? Blessedness, this inner well-being, this happiness, this immovable happiness in life that is divinely stimulated and implanted. It comes from God who resides within you. And friends, this is why the world ought to find you and I to be a most peculiar people, Right? We should be strange to the world. Why? It's because they often can't understand our joy. Right? They can't. They they don't have a paradigm for it. They can't understand it. It boggles their mind. The world is full of a lot of counterfeit joys. And they're all a sham. And they they never do what they promise to do. They all disappoint. They all prove impotent. 
when circumstances change or when hearts grow fickle, and they often do, and they will, our joy is different. It's an immovable joy, a fixed joy. Why? Because our joy comes from an immovable God. He comes from God himself. Our joy is rooted in a right relationship with God that no one can alter, no one can corrupt, and no one can take away. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 for a moment, because I'm realizing you don't have this. So we're going to do some flipping now. 1 John 1, 8. Our joy comes from God. It's a wonderful phrase here. It's like tattooed to my brain. First Peter 1.8. Yes, excellent. Thanks for the question. It reads the following. Though you have not seen him, that him is Christ, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly, and here it is, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That is our kind of joy. Joy inexpressible. When the world goes, I I don't get your joy, it's this. It's joy inexpressible. There's really no words that they have for it. It's so radically different in nature than theirs. That's because our joy springs out of us beholding Christ and being justified in the sight of our Creator. And when we know and behold Christ, we can't help but rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. And we rejoice regardless of circumstances. Trials do not stop us from doing spiritual cartwheels. I've known people in my life. I often talk, there's a man by the name of Dave Huther that has forever impacted my life in Atlanta, Georgia. This is now many years ago. He had cancer for years. The most joy-filled person. If he could do cartwheels down the aisle of the church, he would have. He blessed everyone and he showed everyone how to suffer and to suffer well. It's because his joy was immovable. It was inexpressible. This is why Peter was able to say earlier, look at verse 6 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. We rejoice regardless of circumstances. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. What is the this this there? (laughs) What is the this here? What is he referring to? It's that you're right with God in this, that you're right with God You greatly rejoice, and listen what he says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. No kidding, right? So that the proof of your faith being precious, more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, here is where this is important to remember. A lot of people think that the great thief of joy is hardship. And that is not the case if you are in Christ. Your joy does not ebb and flow with the pleasantries and trials of life. It doesn't. Scripture paints a very different picture of us as believers. For us, our joy is is actually sometimes greater. Catch the irony of this. Sometimes our joy is greater... When our circumstances are the most painful and severe, isn't it? Let me pause there for a moment and ask why. Why is our joy often greater when our circumstances are the most painful and severe? What's happening there? What does God often do in our trial? 
humbles us, which is the sweetest of places to be, right? What else does he do? He gets our attention. He's with us. His sense of me abiding in him and he abiding in me takes on a more powerful form than I ever know when life is com- comfortable and pleasant. Excellent. What else? Absolutely. Yeah. We seek him more. Grabs us by the shoulders. Gives me a good shake, which I need. I need a lot of shaking. What else? Yeah, God works in trial, Right? has its perfect way. It produces things in us that when our distracted, weary, earthly, self-consumed pursuit of comfort self doesn't always, we're not always sensitive to. We don't always yearn for. God has a purpose for trial. I know you know this, but it's important to remember even as we put joy under a microscope. Again, our world does not understand this. It's why they should find us most peculiar. How does, this, how does the Spirit bear the fruit of harvest of joy in our lives? Well, if joy is that in, internal sense of well-being that one experiences in life when you're in right relationship with God, right? If it's that internal sense of well-being that you experience, how does the Spirit bear the fruit or harvest of joy in us? Let's just talk about for a moment. The next hour, we're going to do a a variety of things. What is God's Spirit going to do next hour to work joy in your heart even as you gather corporately together? What is He going to do? Open our eyes. Illuminate our minds. Give us understanding. Excellent. What else? What's that? Reaffirm the security of our salvation. Right? Pour concrete around it. What else? Lift our spirit. spirit. Absolutely. Encourage us. Anything else? Fellowship. He uses you in the lives of one another. You're agents of joy. Joy production. Congratulations. Anything else? Brings us to a new level of maturity. Excellent. What else, Craig? Absolutely. Union with Christ, just knowing it, tasting it, the sweetness of it. Excellent. We're gonna, there's, a, there's a hard text today in Hebrews where there's a finger that just kind of sticks in our chest, and we need those moments, right? What does God do us in that space when there may be some things I need to be kind of set off to the side and I need to speak I need to be spoken to firmly and sternly convicts us right I mean you think about it for a moment one of the things of, of which joy probably diminishes in my life is not the fault of God is it it's me. It's, it's because I'm probably more proactively pursuing the deeds of the flesh in that moment than the fruit of the spirit. So, of course, joy wanes in my life when I'm running headlong into sin. My heart is calloused or I'm, I have spiritual apathy that starts to kind of take over my life. God's going to use his word this morning. I encourage you to listen. Take heed with what we open. 
May the Spirit help us to greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. I'm a fan of Thomas Watson. already quoted him already. Puritan Thomas Watson wrote this. He said, let us weep for those sins which shed his blood. Let us weep for those sins which shed his blood. Yet rejoice in that blood which washes away our sin. Right? Both actions simultaneously. Weep for those sins which shed his blood, but rejoice in his blood which washes away our sins. The Spirit, even as we sing this morning, it's going to renew my appreciation of the work accomplished on the cross for me, the, the blood that was spilled, the resurrection life that we know and that we enjoy. God gives this deep down sense of well-being with him. This is important because our joy is not always as full and complete as it ought to be, is it? Right? It's not. We don't always know its fullness. And again, that's not the fault of God. That's the fault of us. We get distracted. We grow weary. And joy is only known in a believer's life to the extent that we rely on and obey God and his spirit. To the extent that we walk by his spirit in the spirit of Galatians 5. Jesus himself said in John 16, 24, he says, ask and you will receive so that what? That your joy may be full, right? He had to say it to us over and over again. Why? Because we needed it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is where the spirit helps us because you and I can't manufacture this kind of unrelenting joy. Third manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Peace. Love, joy, peace. Philip Ryken, a good Presbyterian, he described this characteristic well when he stated the following. He said, if joy speaks of the exhilaration of the heart that comes from being right with God, then peace refers to the tranquility of mind that comes from that same saving relationship. Let me say it again. If joy speaks of the exhilaration of the heart that comes from being right with God, then peace refers to the tranquility of mind that comes from that same saving relationship. See, being justified by faith through grace alone in Christ alone, i.e. the message of Galatians, means we as Christians have peace with God. Right? Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this peace should beget more peace. It should lead to peace with all Christians. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. Even later, Romans chapter 12, we're at all possible. Peace even with all men. But much of what Paul is referring to here, though, is peace within. Our peace with God should lead to a peace within, even in the midst of a world full of trouble. And it is full of trouble. I was having a conversation with my wife and kids last night. I hate the enemy. Our world is wrought with his efforts to kill, steal, and destroy. I hate it. And yet peace with God should lead to a peace within, even in the midst of a world full of trouble. 
This verb form of this word peace has to do with binding things together. You know this. There's this modern day expression of, of a person who has it all together, right? What does that mean? When we say a person has it all together, what are we saying? What's that? Huh? At peace, right? He's stable. He's not being tossed to and fro, right? He's stable. You know those people in your life. They're just steady. It doesn't really matter what's happening in their life. All of their thoughts and musings of their mind, are just, they just seem to be right where they're supposed to be, right? Bound together. And that's the idea of this peace. Everything is in its place as it ought to be. And when all of the thoughts of your mind are where they ought to be, they're all bound together, what's the result? When all of your thoughts and musings of your heart are right where they're supposed to be, an accurate place, a sound place, what happens? What, what is produced in your life? Or what is lacking in your life? Let's start there. Huh? Well, n- nothing in the sense that, that peace is abounding. It's not what I was going for, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> What is lacking? Okay, I'm, I'm, that's, that's my fault. Poor question, not you. Um, fear, anxiety, there we go. Fear and anxiety. Uh, fear, anxiety. We're not afraid. My thoughts, the musings of my mind and my heart are right where they need to be. They're bound together. They're in a sound place versus an unhealthy, counterproductive place, right? Why? Is because that you know your God is in control of all things. And because you know this, you have no reason to be anxious. You have no reason to be afraid regardless of your circumstances, regardless, regardless of a world that is full of trouble. This is why Jesus could tell his disciples, right? John chapter 14, do not let your heart be troubled. Why? What does he say later in John 14? What does he say? He says, peace I leave with you, (laughs) right? My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Jesus gives us a share of his own peace. And the rest of the passage goes on to say, for I go to prepare a place for you, right? And if I go to prepare a place for you, guess what? I'm coming back for you to bring you there to be with me also. Peace. (laughs) Do not be afraid. Unfortunately, we don't always live in the reality of his peace, do we? This is where the Spirit of God helps us. Let me have your attention for a moment. Some of you have, you have propensities, you have inclinations for your mind to go to very unhelpful places really quickly. We call them in our house errant thoughts. And that text of take every thought and make it obedient to Christ should resonate with you. But Lord, I want every errant thought, every place where my mind goes to an unhealthy place that produces whatever it may produce in your life, shame, guilt, instability, fear, concern, dread, insecurity, the list goes on and on and on. It is not a manifestation of the spirit work in your life of peace, right? of your thoughts being bound together right in the place that God wants them to be. This is where the Spirit of God helps us. Turn to Philippians chapter 4, and we'll close here. Philippians chapter 4. 
And we'll have two questions of application. Philippians 4, verse 9. Philippians 4, 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, all of that great spirit-inspired doctrine, what does it say? Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That's exactly where we need help this morning. The God of peace shall be with you. Why? Because you have the peace of God in your hearts. You need not be anxious for anything, right? You have the peace of God. With text earlier says, surpasses all comprehension. It will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Who does not want that? 2 Thessalonians 3.16 says, Now may the, God, the Lord of peace himself continually get, grant you peace in every circumstances, circumstance. The Lord be with you all. May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Two, two points of application. Really two statements with kind of two questions for you and I to work out. In terms of living what we learn, I would encourage you, fruit bearing is beyond us. And you need to be mindful of this. We are horrible grace culturists, grace harvesters. <laughs> Despite what fallen man may think, man is not intrinsically good. No shock. We are not capable of this list. Despite what arrogant humanity may think, we do not have a spiritual green thumb. Okay? But my question for you this morning... What are ways we avail ourselves to God's green thumb? And I'm already questioning how I, how I asked that, but it's already on paper. It's documented. How do we avail ourselves to God's work in our lives to produce these things in our life? We pray, right? Going back to the Gospel of John, ask and you will receive. Excellent. First, Philippians 1, verse 9. What else? Read the Word. Absolutely. We submit to Him, right? We do not grieve the Holy Spirit. When he impresses, when he convicts, when he draws things to mind. Anything else? We practice. Yeah, just, just a deliberate, just today, I'm going to practice. We give attention to whatever it is on that list that may, Lord, I need, I need help with gentleness, which we'll get to. Meditate on it. Excellent. Read it. Meditate on it. principle is, the point of this question is, is we avail ourselves to these things that God uses to see these things increase and abound in our lives. His spirit already resides within us, right? But from the moan of salvation until we enter into glory, our lives are marked by that progressive sanctification where he is forming and shaping us in his likeness. We're not instantaneously 100% mature. I don't, need to, I don't have to tell you that. Every single day, is having this list be manifested in a more abounding fashion than the day prior. Second thing to encourage you is that while fruit bearing is beyond us, and while we depend on God for this to be manifested within us, fruit bearing is still hard work. It's still hard work. We are saved by faith, to be sure, but we are not sanctified solely by faith. There's work, there's toiling, there's working out your salvation, Right? We depend upon God, but sanctification is not passive. We do not, despite what the world and gross forms of theology will tell you, we do not let go and let God. That is not how sanctification works. 
It is true that we work the deeds of the flesh, but that should not be seen as implying that bearing fruit requires no work on our part. So I'm going to ask you, what does active fruit harvesting toil look like? What does active fruit harvesting toil look like? Self-denial. Excellent. What's that? Service of others. Giving time, energy, attention. Natalie. Excellent, excellent. Being humble, correctable, teachable in moments that are supposed to be productive in your life versus arrogant and callous, stiff-necked. What else? Being vulnerable. Vulnerable, yeah. Actually, proactively, instead of somebody coming to you to reveal those things, which has its purpose, you actually reveal them. Vulnerability, excellent. Share with someone. If, if there's something on this list, I, man, I, this is lacking in my life. I, I, I manifest more of the deeds of the flesh in this area of my family or with my children or with my marriage. Let that be known to someone. Share it. What else? Yeah, yeah. That love may beget more love, right? It can be contagious. Contagious fruit. Excellent. Anything else? Obedience. Yeah, absolutely. Just confessing these things. Repenting of them, right? Repenting of those things Brandon covered last week. And pleading with God and saying, God, I want to give maximum effort to see these things produced in my life. And why? Not that I can be right with you. God, I'm already right with you. I want my life to reflect you and bring glory to you for what you've already done in my life. Right? Because if the message of Galatians, let's just kind of capstone it with this. You're not doing these things to grant to yourself assurance of salvation. You want these things manifested because this is the reality of who you are. I am secure in his hand by the finished work of Christ. Amen? Excellent. Keep that legalist at bay. (laughs) Okay? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning and for the sweetness of your word. We thank you for the primer that it is, even for the next hour. May our fellowship be marked by a sweetness, even as we just mentioned, Lord, a vulnerability to share and pray with each other and encourage and point one another to the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be honored. We pray it now in his name. Amen.